If you would, open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We have began a series a few weeks ago called Imagining the Kingdom. Imagining the Kingdom. And um, we're going to continue in that. We began the series in Hebrews 11. We're working our way through that. But then we will continue in other texts as we go forward uh, as well. Uh, the, the subtitle for this message is, What Story Are You Living In? What Story Are You Living In? Now, I, I don't want to have to repeat some background stuff every time I, we, we get into this, but there are some essential things to keep in mind that we've covered in the past. And, and so one is, when we're talking about imagination, we're not talking about figments of your imagination. Uh, we're, we're talking about things that uh, are very real, but we, you see, the reality is we all live according to what we imagine. Uh, we imagine that money has value, so we work hard for money. We would all be thrilled to win the lottery, well, maybe most of us, and, and, and yet the truth is that that's an imaginary thing. Uh, there, there is no intrinsic value to money, and, 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 and yet we live and strive and, and everything for it because enough people imagine it together that it actually imparts value to it, and the minute enough people stop believing in it, then it goes down in value rapidly. Um, there are other things. I mean, people, people will, will say, I love this country. People will be away from this country for many, many years, and they'll come back. And what is the one thing you often hear about them doing is they'll, they'll get down on the ground and kiss the ground. But when they say they love the country, they don't actually love the ground. That's not what it is that they're actually loving. They do kiss the ground, which is symbolic. But what they actually love is this idea of America that is very independent from the ground itself. The ground is something that is factual, that you can touch. The, the idea is imaginary. That's why it's called the great experiment, right? This, this is the grand experiment that began and is going on. Why? Because it was something that somebody imagined could be, and they've begun to put it together, and enough people are walking it out. But the minute enough people stop believing in it, then we're in real trouble, right, as a country. We, we live for the very things that we imagine. I think the gospel calls us to imagine a different way of living, and to walk in that way of living. So that's just enough to kind of catch you up to where we've been. For more on that, the previous uh, messages will have to suffice. But if you would, read with me in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Stir in us a proper imagination for your kingdom. Help us to realize what your kingdom is all about and our role and part in it and how that changes everything about us and our lives. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened. May our imaginations, as it were, be enlightened that we might know the hope to which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen. Author J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame in a graduation speech at Harvard in 2008, said the following, Imagination is not only the uniquely human capacity to envision that which is not, 
and therefore the fount of all invention and innovation, it is arguably the most transformative and revelatory capacity. It is the power that enables us to empathize with humans whose experiences we have never shared. We do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. Rowling was not talking about her imaginative books, but the imagination it takes to envision a better world and act in such a way as to achieve it. Her vision, in particular, is Amnesty International, which has very many uh, admirable uh, goals and some questionable goals, but she is right about how to achieve a changed world, even if slightly overstated. As Christians, we have the unique vision of a kingdom established in justice and righteousness with increasing peace, and we are to pursue it with greater vigor than those who pursue any other vision. I mean, our verse 4 said, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. That certainly implies a lot of effort needs to be put into it. I posted a blog Friday afternoon, or Friday morning, I guess it was. Um, Imagination and money in a fish's mouth. It kind of came out of our Friday morning prayer time. Sitting there, and that story comes to my mind, and I start thinking about it. Imagination and money in a fish's mouth. It's from the story about Simon Peter getting... Uh, Jesus and his tax money from the fish's mouth. We often miss the point of the story because we're trying to figure out how a fish got money in its mouth and the exact amount that they needed, in fact, and how he caught that particular fish. Because we're all caught up in details like that that have nothing to do with why the story's there. I argued that the story is about the importance of imagining the kingdom. Bear with me. Those who collect the temple tax ask Peter if, if Jesus pays the temple tax. I suppose Peter imagined something like, uh, good Jews pay the temple tax. Jesus is a good Jew, therefore Jesus pays the temple tax. Makes good sense, right? That was his story. And so he says, yes! When Peter gets back to the house, Jesus immediately asks Peter, "Um, what do you think, Simon? That was his other name, Simon, same guy. What do you think, Simon? Simon? You see, that's the point. It's what Peter was thinking. That's the problem. It's what he imagined to be true. That was the problem. He needed a changed imagination. He says, what do you think, Simon? If this story was supposed to teach us Jesus paid his taxes or some variation on that, all Jesus needed to do was tell Peter where to get the money. Story's over. Done. Finished. Instead, Jesus knows he needs to adjust the story by which Peter lives. Jesus begins with a question about who pays taxes, servants or sons. And of course, everyone knows the answer to that question. You imagine a kingdom? There's no way the king's son is paying taxes to the king. It ain't going to happen. It's the servants. It's everyone else, right, that pays taxes. Peter knew that. We know that. Sons of kings don't pay them. Therefore, the temple being God's palace or throne, well, the Son of God does not pay a temple tax. Therefore, Jesus then instructs Peter that he'll pay the tax in order not to offend them. But not because he owed it. You see, he's paying the tax either way. But how Peter imagines what's taking place is the point of the story. 
You can't imagine I'm paying it because I owe it. That would be wrong. You have to imagine I'm doing it just not to offend them because I'm the Son of God. It's all about how he imagines the story. We've been learning in Hebrews 11 and 12 that the life of faith is not only about what we do, but also about reimagining the story that we are a part of. We're going to explore verses 1 through 17 in the 12th chapter under three headings. Here are the three headings. You'll see them in your notes. Consider the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Consider your adoption into the family. And consider your life as part of the family. Consider the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Consider your adoption into the family. And consider your life as part of the family. Um, First, consider the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And if you would, read with me those first three verses again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I want to highlight three important things from those verses for our successful journey of faith. Three important things from those verses for our successful journey of faith here. First, we have entered a leg of a long, long relay race. We are part of a story. Stories cast as a race in this text. Our race is part of a bigger race and is important to those who have gone before. I mean, in a a relay race, the people who went before, just because they're done with their part doesn't mean they leave and go home. No, what do they do? They stay and watch everyone else that's running the next legs of their journey. And if that leg is long enough, they may be there for hours, as in this case, millennia. Watching the race. Why? Because the outcome is something that we share together. It isn't their outcome. We might look at Abraham and say, wow, look at his faith. Wasn't that great? But that's part of our race. And it's not just your outcome because your outcome is part of their race. They're interested in how you run. It matters to them. They are now in, according to these verses, all those people listed in chapter 11 are now in the grandstands. A great cloud of witnesses, just out of sight, (laughs) cheering us in. They realize that it is an ultra. You know what an ultra is? Of course, you've got small half ultras, like 50-something miles. And you've got these hundred and some, and I think some of them go up to 128 miles that people are running. I think there's some that go to 250 and beyond. We've got a friend who was part of this church for a while, but he... He was running the 128-mile ones, did one through um, Death Valley in the middle of the summer. I mean, crazy stuff. I don't understand that. don't know why anyone would ever want to do it. And I'm certainly uh, sure they're going to have a bill for having their knees replaced early in life. But regardless, <laughs> this is a massive ultra that we're involved in. Fortunately for all of us, it's a relay, right? It's not dependent. The outcome is not entirely dependent on just how we run. But it is important how we run, right? We've all got a part to play in that journey. The Christian journey is not an individual journey. It's a group relay race. So we must cheer one another on. Remember the cathedrals. We talked about them last week right at the end of the message. 
Cathedrals, most of them were built over centuries. They weren't just built in one person's lifetime. So you might have had as many as ten generations of craftsmen, when you consider their their skilled working life, uh, that worked on the same cathedral. But the ones that were at the beginning and in the middle, they had to imagine what the finished product would be because they would never see it. This list in chapter 11 is not the heroes of faith, or nor is it faith's hall of fame. No, they were participants in a relay who came before us whose faith we must emulate to finish the race. It, it kind of takes it out of reach of us when we call it face Hall of Fame. I don't go visit the Hall of Fame in order to think, well, I'm going to be a, a, a professional baseball player or, or football or whatever it might be. I don't go there to emulate the people in it. I go there to admire them. And that's the problem by calling it face Hall of Fame or the heroes of faith. What we're setting ourselves up for is to admire them but not emulate them. It's our family story that's being told. I, I, 2000, well, 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, we went to a family reunion in Chicago for the Caesar side of the family, which came from Czech Republic today, at the time Bohemia. Uh, whatever that says about me, I don't know. But anyway, a <laughs> bunch of Bohemians, but, but <laughs> to be sure. Uh, and, and, and it was fascinating, and I went there, and there, were, there, there was professional baseball players in it, professional football players in, in the family store. There are all sorts of things in the family store, but I didn't go there to admire all these people. There were some that came over from Czech, uh, at the time I think Czechoslovakia, to come to the uh, event that, that were relatives. And, and so we, we learned, we went through and talked about family history. We ate good Czech food, and whatever that is, and, and we had it, and, and so... Um, all I know is that Czech food isn't as good as Italian because my grandfather, my dad's dad, when my first time my mother made pasta, my Italian mother made pasta for him, uh, pasta's on the table, the first thing he asks is, where's the ketchup? Um, so, you know, definitely Italian food's better than Czech, to be sure. But um, I was there to learn. I was there to, it, to take in my family's history. That's what Hebrews 11 is. It's our family's history. And at times, this race that is set before us is agony. The word for race there in the original language is agona. Now, it's not that it means agony, but you can transparently hear from agona that we get our word agony from that word. In their language, it had two meanings. One was an athletic competition, a race, and the other was a struggle against opposition, a fight. So it could be a race, it could be a fight. Well, here it's a race, so that's quite clear from the context. But there's an element, and I, I think the, the author intends the pun, this element of, of struggle that is involved in this race. We must throw off those things which cause us to stumble so we can persevere. We're told to throw off or set aside first every hindrance. That word can either be translated as hindrance or a heavy weight. See, Runners don't want weights. If you notice, runners wear the lightest clothing possible. I mean, it's just light. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's almost nothing. Why? Because anything else would weigh them down and slow them down. What are the things, whether sinful or otherwise, that hinder you from walking in faith? You see, throw off every hindrance, every weight, and 
the sin. So it's not necessarily sin. There are things that can hinder our walk of faith that in and of themselves aren't sin, but we have to ask, are they helping us in our walk of faith? There are plenty of things which may hinder the life of faith and orient us toward a meaningless life. Maybe it's anxiety over provision. How how will we make it? Maybe it's spending your time numbing your soul with substances or entertainment. Or the sin that easily entangles, ensnaring sin. What are those sins that trip you up? Possibly greed, selfishness, ambition, or how about lust or drunkenness? How about anger and rage, rivalry? Whatever those things are, and the list could go on, right? We could keep going and add all sorts of things to the list. But, but the question is, what are those things that snare you? What are the things that snare me? We're all different. There are different things. What might be a a, a snare for you is maybe something that I wouldn't struggle over, but vice versa, right? The thing that would snare me up wouldn't snare you up. So we have to be careful and recognize what is it that, that would snare us in this race. Each runner must know their own weaknesses. We must embrace, so, so we must throw off the things that cause us to stumble, but we also must embrace the story of Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So, One, we've entered a long, long, long relay race. Two, we must throw off the things that cause us to stumble. And and, and then three, we must embrace the story of Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. In verse 2, we're told to look away from those things which tempt us and look toward Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. In verse 3, we're told to consider him and how he overcame suffering. Now, What does it mean to say that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith? Well, it means that faith started with him and faith was perfected by him. Faith started with him and faith was perfected by him. The pioneer. Now, the preacher. I keep referring to the author. I'll keep referring to him as the preacher because most scholars today would tell you that this is actually a sermon that was written down and sent to the churches. So, Given that it's a sermon, I'm just going to call him a preacher instead of an author, just because that makes sense. So, the preacher is, he's pulling from the beginning of the story of faith back in Hebrews 11.3, where we read, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Remember, faith is the substance of things not seen, or the, the, the assurance of things not seen, assurance that they're real. So, Since what is seen was not made out of what was visible, and since it is through the Son of God uh, that that, that God created all things, so through the Son that God created all things, according to Hebrews chapter 1, in that sense, we can say that Jesus began it all with faith. He created the seen out of the unseen. So he began it all with faith, and he's the perfecter of faith. As great as the faith is of those in chapter 11, it wasn't in itself perfect. After them came Jesus who perfected faith. Everyone else's faith is a great model and worthy of emulation. Jesus is the model of perfect faith. Consider him above all. Not exclusive of the others, but as the perfect expression of all the others. Now, many translations, uh, King James, ESV, a number of other translations put the word our in front of faith there, the author and perfecter of our faith, which has led to the idea that this verse is about Jesus, he started your faith and he finishes your faith. Well, that may be a great truth, 
that is somewhere else in the Bible, but one, it's not the truth here because the word our isn't in the original and the context doesn't support adding it. So it's not about your faith. It's about faith. He authored and perfected faith, and he is the model for us. And if we learn that, then, of course, it will help finish our faith indeed. Um, What this is about is after the whole story of our ancestors' journey of faith, chapter 11, Jesus is set in the story as the one who demonstrated perfect faith for us to follow. Their story, Jesus' story, they are both our story also. We are in the same relay race. We are part of the story of all those who came before. We must realize that the primary story of which we are part is the Son of God, the Israel of God, Jesus. Why? Because as Paul might have said it, we are running the race in Christ. We are running the race in Christ. Jesus is the perfect picture of faith or faithfulness. He was faithful all the way to the point of death. The Gospels, a little side note, but it's an important note. Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, but even John, we can, we can show it in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's more explicit. They, dim- they showed Jesus as the true Israel. You know, remember how Israel went through the Red Sea, which we know is a picture of baptism, and into the wilderness and were tested in the wilderness, which they, did they pass or fail the test in the wilderness? Israel. They failed, Right? Jesus goes into the water of baptism and immediately goes out and goes where? Into the wilderness to be what? Tested. And I say, did Jesus pass or fail? He passed. Now, there are so many other things that we see in the Gospels that keep trying to, they cast Jesus in the story of Israel as the one who succeeded at what they failed. He is the Israel of God. He is the true Israel, the true, as Galatians put it, the seed, singular, of Abraham. Okay? All who are in him are in the true Israel. But see, I've already bled into point two, so we're going to jump there. So you must consider the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You also must consider your adoption into the family. Read with me beginning in verse four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. That's a quote out of the book of Proverbs. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. These verses instruct us as believers to reinterpret, to reimagine, if you will, our suffering. To reimagine what's actually happening in our suffering. Our faulty imagination experiences suffering and wonders if God is mad at us. 
Here we're instructed rather to see those sufferings as evidence of the Father's love. The very thing that we naturally think means God doesn't love us, He wants us to reimagine as a meaning that God does love us. You see that? Same event, different way of thinking about it. And it's very important that we do so. Reimagine it. Let's look a little deeper. These verses come immediately after speaking about Jesus in the first three verses, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, Jesus has more than a dozen times already in the book of Hebrews been referred to as the Son, the Son of God, God's Son. Repeatedly called the Son, the Son, the Son. Important to keep in mind when we get here. In verses 5 and 6, notice that the, 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 the word Son is singular, and then it moves to plural. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So that's where he begins to transition at the very end of that toward the plural. Now, the book of Proverbs, you're probably familiar with the book. What is the heading that is at the beginning of many of the chapters? Something to the effect of my son, listen to me, my son, pay attention to my words, my son, my son, my son, my son. And it goes on and on and on and on. Proverbs was written to my son, which Israel understood to be them. Because Exodus, God calls Israel, my son. Let my son go, he tells Pharaoh. But he doesn't let his son go, so he redeems his son. And so Israel understood that this book of Proverbs was applying God's law to their lives because they are the son of God. Now Jesus, the true Israel, the true son, according to chapter 2, verse 10, was made perfect in his obedient faith through suffering. So here we are to enter into Jesus' own suffering. It's not as quite as obvious as Paul, because Paul would have used the word adopted, but this is about adoption, even without using the word adoption. We are adopted in the Son. Being the true Israel, Jesus is the vine. All who are in Him are part of the true Israel. They're the branches. If He is the vine, Israel was pictured as a vineyard and a vine throughout the Old Testament. Well, He is the vine. There's Jesus being the true Israel in John right there. (laughs) He is the vine. We are the branches. In Him, we are part of that vine. We are part of Israel. That's how we entered into the race. We were adopted into the family. Now, when I entered into my sophomore sophomore year of high school, um, I was at a high school in northwest Arkansas. Now, admittedly, it was one of the best schools in the state, but it was Arkansas, so just keep that in mind. And, and I, I got to my first day of algebra trigs, 10th grade. Mr. Franks was going down the roll, and he would have everybody stand when he called their name so that he could put a face with the name. And I'm sorry for those that have been around here a long time. You've heard this story, and you're probably bored with it. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just reality. And, and so he goes on down the list, and he gets to Caesar. He, he says, Caesar, Jerry. And he looks up. And he pauses, unlike with all the other names. He didn't pause with them. Why is he pausing? He says, um, you have a brother named Tim Caesar? It's my oldest brother. I, I said, yes. He had a hard time in my class. You will too. 
Wow! <laughs> That's great! <laughs> I mean, if algebra trig isn't hard enough. Well, about halfway through the quarter, he had me showing an F. I'd never made anything but straight A's in math before in my life. Had me just an F. It didn't matter what I put down on a test. He would show why my correct answer was still wrong. <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous. I dropped the class, had to take it a year later. Uh, had straight A's the next time, but, you know, had, had to go at it a different way. You see, I was rejected because of my older brother and his behavior. Now, to be fair, my older brother would admit that he was, uh, you know, he, he, he could be, uh, what's the nice word for putting this? Over the top. He could be over the top, to be sure. But he certainly didn't deserve that treatment that he got from that teacher um, at all. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, uh, Jesus is our older brother. And when we are in him, we are accepted because of him. I was rejected, amen, because of what my brother did. But this is a, the same but different relationship because in Christ we are accepted. When we are in him, we're part of the family. And we get the benefits of being part of the family, amen? Not only did Jesus the Son endure hardship as discipline, so too the people of Israel throughout their history have endured hardship. In a sense, it was because they were chosen that more was expected of them. It was because they were chosen that they suffered at times. We enter into that story. We were adopted into this family as sons and daughters through Jesus. And the goal is to share in God's holiness to be like him. You see, we often think of God as someone who does not suffer, but indeed he does. In fact, when God became a man, his life was marked with suffering. And suffering was certainly the center of the story. Why? Because he was God. God patiently endures. God patiently suffers sinful humanity's rebellion against him. He is not untouched by our pain, but suffers with us. He has compassion to suffer with for us. After considering Jesus and then considering our adoption into the family through Jesus, we must now consider our life as part of this family of Abraham. And that's our third point. Consider your life as part of the family. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, these two verses, 12 and 13, they're quoted, verse 12 is quoted from Isaiah, and 13 is quoted from Proverbs. And they're just joined together. And understanding how these verses can be connected like that, it expands our imagination of the kingdom. So I want to take a minute to help us understand why the preacher could take a verse out of Isaiah and connect it to a verse in Proverbs. He's just used Proverbs, and we talked about why he could do that. And that's relevant to this, but why could he take this verse out of Isaiah and just attach it to this verse in Proverbs? Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees comes from Isaiah 35, verse 3. Now, that chapter, the whole chapter, looks beyond the exile. Isaiah has come to a people, and, and they've been in rebellion against God, and he tells them, you're going to go into exile, but then he gives them hope and a promise beyond that. And in chapter 35, he's looking beyond the exile, when they would be restored to be a people again. And it's looking past that, and there we read this announcement of hope. The land to be 
or the desert rather, and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It, I, it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and uh, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then... Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Now remember that line. The eyes of the blind will be opened the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What are those verses about? They're about the restoration of the kingdom of God. The restoration of the people of Israel. And... You might recall John the Baptist, he was sitting in prison, he had a little bit of a question about Jesus, and so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and what does he ask? Uh, are you the one to come, or should we be expecting someone else? Right? You remember that question? It's like, like things aren't going quite like we expected here, Jesus, so what's up? And how does Jesus respond? He, he quotes these verses right here in verse 5, that, that, and, and these ideas from this section in Isaiah about eyes being opened and deaf hearing and lame walking. What's he saying? He says, yes, I'm the one to come. But it isn't quite happening the way you thought. Now, follow the imagination of the preacher in Hebrews. If you are joined to the Son who suffered in the perfecting of his faith, then you too are sons and daughters, and therefore will suffer in the perfecting of your faith, but strengthen your feeble hands, steady your weak knees, be strong and do not fear, for your Father God will come and rescue you, for you are the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, those who are joined to Christ. That's who you are. And if that is who you are, then that changes everything, including how you live. And if that is who you are, then you are the son to whom Proverbs speaks, therefore Proverbs can be directly applied to you. And then in verses, if, if verses 12 and 13, this verse from Isaiah about the restoration and this verse from Proverbs that was given to Israel, if they can be spoken, then verses 14 through 17, apply it. Listen to his application of those verses. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now to understand how that application grows out of the verses cited in verse 12 and 13, we have to answer a question, simple question. Why did Israel go into exile to begin with? Why did God, after rescuing them from Egyptian slavery, bringing them into the land, boot them out and send them back into bondage again? Why? What would cause God to do that? In simplest term, it was because they ceased to live as God's holy people. They were not living in shalom or peace with each other but were harming one another to the point that the Lord called them murderers. 
In the words of Isaiah 5, they were a vineyard that did not bear fruit. He looked for the fruit of justice, but found bloodshed, for righteousness, but found only cries of distress. People were buying up all the real estate so that the poor had no place to live. Since they weren't bearing fruit, God pronounced that their land would not bear fruit either. Become a desert, if you will. Because they denied justice to the innocent, their roots would decay. They would rot, according to Isaiah 5, 23 and 24. Might that be what the bitter root is referring to? Rotten roots. You're not bearing fruit, lest you have a bitter root. Which is to say, you're not bearing the sweet fruit of righteousness that God calls for. In Isaiah 33, just two chapters before the quote that we had about strengthening the hands and and weak knees. We read this. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Oh, wait a minute. Consuming fire. That's going to come up at the end of chapter 12. See, these verses are on the preacher's mind as he's going through this, all of this in Isaiah. Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil, they are the ones who will dwell in the heights, whose refuge will be, in, with the, mountain, uh, will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. You see, the promise of Israel's restoration included having roots that went down deep and produced great fruit above where it could be seen. Peace would be descriptive of that community. Righteousness would be descriptive of that community, or holiness, if you will. So the application in in verses 14 through 17 are just kind of a restating of the things you would expect if you were reading Isaiah. In other words, when the preacher of Hebrews, in chapter 11... He connects our faith story to that of Abel, to Abraham and the patriarchs, to Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness, to various judges and kings, to the persecuted and mistreated. And then in chapter 12, he quotes this text from Isaiah and applies it to the church. He is teaching us to reimagine the restoration of Israel from the one expected, the restoration that people expected, to the one that God was doing in and through Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again because I know that's hard to follow. But that is central to New Testament theology. If you want to understand Paul, if you want to understand the whole New Testament, this is central to the whole thing. It all hinges right here. The preacher in Hebrews is teaching us to reimagine the restoration of Israel from the restoration that we expected, the people might have expected, to the one that God was doing in and through Jesus Christ. And since you are now a part of God's restored Israel, you must begin to live that part. Even the instruction not to be like Esau fits. Because in Isaiah 34, right in the midst of those sections we've been reading, all the nations are condemned in Isaiah 34, and they're all called by the name Edom or Esau. You see, because either we're of Esau or we're of Jacob. Jacob is the chosen. Esau is not. And if we're in Christ, the chosen true seed of Abraham, then we are the chosen. We're in Jacob. We're not in Esau.
We have to begin to live out. Have you ever wondered how Paul, and I'm, I'm closing here in just a second, but have you ever wondered how Paul could on the one hand just keep hammering away that we're not under the law, and on the other hand he'll just pick a verse out of the Old Testament, quote it, and apply it to you? But what's he, is he like, you know, something wrong with him? I mean, you know, like doesn't he remember what he just got through saying a chapter before or something like that, right? Well, the, the, the reality is that I think we misunderstand Paul. I don't think it's that Paul misunderstands what he's doing. I think it's us that is in the wrong. Yeah, it's a good chance to go with that. Maybe you should just go with that, right? And, and, and so, see, Paul, he understands that we have to reimagine everything we thought we knew about the law. Under the law, there's only one way to be in Israel. You either had to be born naturally of the seed of Abraham, or you had to come in and reject your heritage and become Jewish, a proselyte, in order to be, and you had to keep the law, you had to be circumcised, you had to do all these things, participate in the festivals, everything, and then you could be part of Israel. And Paul said, no, you're not under that, that's of the flesh. That's a fleshly marker for how you get there. No, you're in by way of the Spirit. You are Israel, and this is your story, but it's been changed a bit. It's transformed a bit. You don't get in that way by way of the flesh. You get in by way of the Spirit of Jesus Christ who dwells in you. So all these things that he then goes and quotes, he quotes because it's your story too. No contradiction in his mind of what's going on at all. Well, next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and the next part of Hebrews 12 connects directly to the Pentecost story, so we'll, we'll look at that next week. But just a couple of things in closing. It's a question. Is knowing the story by which we are to live, or what I've been calling imagining the kingdom... Is it really all that important? And I'm going to say yes. I think it is that important. Let me tell you a story. In the New Testament, people were baptized immediately upon conversion. On Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were baptized. In Acts 8, after hearing the gospel, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch sees some water and asks if anything would prevent him from being baptized. Philip responds, stop the chariot! When Peter is at uh, the Gentile Cornelius' house in Acts 10, after he sees the Spirit falling upon them, he says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And the first Gentiles are baptized into the kingdom without becoming Jewish proselytes, by the way. <laughs> and in the second century, things changed. In, in many places, from the time people professed faith until they were allowed to be baptized, their training and instruction before baptism might last up to three years before they could be baptized. Now, we might wonder, we might wonder how they could get that far amiss. And we might be right. I'll leave that judgment for others. But it's not as if they weren't aware of the seeming contradiction. They were quite aware of the seeming contradiction. People voiced their objections to the church leaders all the time about why they were making them wait so long. Here was their reasoning. In the case of the Jews, the Ethiopian eunuch, the, who was a proselyte, and the God-fearing Gentiles of Acts, like Cornelius and the rest of those Gentiles we see throughout the book of Acts, by and large, who, who come to the faith, but they regularly attended the synagogue. They didn't accept Jewish religion, but they regularly attended the synagogue and believed in the God that they were talking about and, the, and, and knew the story and the teaching. 
Um, <clears throat> they already understood the story, was their argument. And so for them to become a part of a story and to begin to live a changed life was not a hard transition. But if one doesn't know the story, then one can't live their part, they reasoned. The training was intended to teach them a, a story, a new story to reform as we might put it, their imagination so that they could actually begin to live an entirely different way of life. Now, whether they're right about delaying baptism, I won't judge, but they were right about the importance of transforming the story by which we live. They understood that people must learn a new story to imagine a new way to live, and then they can live differently. If based on results only, they win the debate. And of course, there's other things we need to factor in than just results. But certainly they have something to show in that discussion. When we began, I said that as Christians, we have the unique vision of a kingdom established in justice and righteousness with increasing peace. And we're able to pursue it with greater vigor, or we are to pursue it with greater vigor than those who pursue any other. The imagination required to pursue it requires reimagining the story by which we live. We all live by stories we imagine to be true. Christ ascended on high, disappearing into the clouds in Acts 1, and was seated at the right hand of God from where he now rules over everything. Now we must imagine the world as he would have it to be and live in it that way. We are the people chosen to be a royal priesthood in a holy nation. We are ambassadors for another kingdom and must live according to the laws and ways of that kingdom. We must strengthen our weak hands that were unable to do His will previously and our weak knees that have not walked in His ways or run our leg of the relay race of faith well, but we must begin to do so now. What story are you living in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us reimagine our lives according to the story, the gospel of the kingdom. Christ the King has come. He is seated at your right hand, reigning over everything in heaven and on earth. He will come again to establish the fullness of His reign. And how we live now determines what we are doing with what He has given us. Whether or not we have been faithful with the grace entrusted to us, or whether we've buried it and are just waiting to see what happens. Lord, help us to run by faith, to persevere, and to look unto Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.